one of the, um, one of the things that's happened as a result of lockdown that I don't think anybody probably would have seen coming was that there's been an explosion in online chess. People think it's a result of uh, partly the kind of Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, which is about uh, Beth Harmon, a kind of uh, literary uh, figure, imaginary figure, uh, uh, chess champion. But chess is one of those things that you can play online pretty easily, and there are online tournaments happening all around the world all the time, and millions and millions of people uh, taking part. And I'm one of those. I was like one of those people who like started playing in lockdown and got into it and started doing uh, doing uh, the odd game in the odd moments. Realised things had got a bit far when I heard uh, Sally say to one of the kids, "Where's your father?" And the answer was, "He's playing chess again." And then there was just a right. <laughs> okay, maybe time to rein it in a little bit. Of course, chess is one of those like, fascinating games that's full of strategy. You can play at um, any level. You can earn at any age. And um, if you don't know the history of it, it was invented in India, and then it came to Europe in the kind of Middle Ages, and it was uh, transformed as it came to, uh, came to, the, to, to the European continent. Uh, the pieces moved in the same way, but they had different names. And when it came to Europe, uh, the pieces were named after um, uh, characters in the royal court. So the soldiers with the pawns, they just take one step forward, they're expendable, Uh, you get rid of them early in the battle. Uh, You have the knights who jump in and out of uh, little fights around the board. You have the bishops, you've got to watch out for them, they're sneaky, they act uh, diagonally. And you have the most powerful uh, piece, which is the queen. It didn't always used to be called the queen, used to be called the counsellor or the general or the advisor. And with the rise of powerful uh, queens in Europe, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, Isabella of Spain, uh, the queen took on that role of the most powerful person at court. Uh, But the most valuable person at court always remained the king. How do you win a game of chess where you capture, not kill the king? Actually, that goes back to medieval times where the aim of battle was not so much to kill uh, the king or the the leader of the opposing forces, but to capture him. Why? Well, then you could then ransom him back to his country, who would be forced to pay a king's ransom. And so you would become uh, rich. If you can't make the king safe, the game is lost. The king must be protected at all costs. All the other pieces are expected uh, to sacrifice themselves to protect and guard the king. This reminds me of a little-known incident that happened towards the end of the Second World War. There was the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day, and uh, Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, uh, desperately wanted to see the invasion in action. He arranged to be stationed on the bridge of one of the battleships in the English Channel so he'd have a great view of everything that was going to happen. And General Eisenhower was desperately worried about this and feared that the Prime Minister might be killed in battle, a shell might hit the battleship. He tried all his mouth to persuade Churchill not to attend, but Churchill was resolute. He wanted to see the Allied victory in person. And so Eisenhower appealed to a higher authority. He went to see King George. 
King George went and told Churchill that if it was the Prime Minister's duty to witness the invasion, then he could only conclude that he as king would have to be there as well and that he would join him on the bridge of the battleship. At this point, Churchill reluctantly backed down. He knew he could not expose the King of England to such danger. We gather here this morning to worship King Jesus. And King Jesus does exactly the opposite of the kings of this world. With royal courage, he surrenders his body to be crucified. On a cross of wood with a crown of thorns, he offers his life as a king's ransom. He gives his life for the life of his people. When we look into the Gospels, we see that Jesus' life is framed by kingship. When he's born, three kings search out for the newborn King Jesus. At his crucifixion, the notice hammered into the top of his cross ironically echoes the same unfulfilled promise, the King of the Jews. When he rises again, his followers declare, the King is alive. What kind of king begins his life in an earthly stable and ends it as a victim of cruel public execution? Jesus' reaction to the question as to whether he was a king is at least to Pilate elusive. Are you the king of the Jews? asks Pilate. And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would go to fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But no, my kingdom is from another place. Jesus is a king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet his kingship is entirely different from the rule of the kings of this world. His kingdom is from another place. Let's just reflect this morning just briefly how Jesus' kingship is different. Uh, Firstly, it's different because this is a king who lays down his life for his people. And it's not just in chess that everything must be sacrificed to defend the king. Life works like that. It worked like that in the Middle Ages where soldiers were expected to lay down their lives to prevent their king uh, being captured. For many of you, it works like that in the workplace today as well. A politician gets into trouble. His advisor is expected to take the fall. Some of you work for companies where you don't have so much a king but you have a CAO, you have a chief exec, you have a board. And you know that you're expendable in terms of their career and their advancement. Perhaps you work for a company that doesn't so much have a king, but it has a brand, a brand that must be protected, a brand that must be defended, a brand for which sacrifices must be made. 
Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus lays down his life for his kingdom. And his kingdom is utterly different to the kingdoms of this world. I love this line uh, in his answer to Pilate. My kingdom is from another place. You get the sense that Pilate has absolutely no idea what Jesus is talking about. He's caught up in a theological conversation. He doesn't understand. He just wants to get things resolved quickly, and he will do that by the power of the sword. Jesus' kingship is from another place, a higher place. And it will reside in a different place. Not in countries with borders and boundaries, with armies and parliaments. His kingdom will reside in the hearts of his people. He will rule in their hearts, in our hearts. To any and all who would follow him, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit, the counsellor, will come and take up residence within our hearts, be enthroned in our hearts. That's some of the language that we use in our songs. His desire is not so much to rule countries or to guard borders, but to rule hearts and change minds and be glorified in lives. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah. They're expecting a coming king. And there'd been those who'd gone before who they thought and they'd hoped had been the king in their midst. They knew that there was two things that the Messiah, the promised king, would do. Firstly, he would build or he would restore the temple. And secondly, he would fight the decisive battle against the enemy. One of the first hopes was King David, the greatest king of the Old Testament. He won many battles, but the first decisive battle he fought was against the giant Goliath. Defeated him in an instant. His last act was to plan the temple that his son Solomon would build. It was... King David, the Messiah, well, no, but he was certainly a type of Messiah. What about Judas Maccabees? He led the Maccabean revolt. He was born in 160 BC, so about 150, 160 years before Jesus. He won many battles. He defeated the Seleucids, or we know them as the Syrians. He cleansed the temple. He restored the faith of Israel. He was a great leader, a priest who was also a king. And yet he died in battle, the struggle to be carried on by his sons. Barcoba was the last would-be Messiah of the period. His battle was against the Romans, and he fought many campaigns against them. He rebuilt uh, the temple. And yet his reign ended in ignominious defeat, utterly crushed. The Jewish people are only just uh, uh, recovering from his defeat by the time of Jesus. And that's why the Jewish leaders are so fearful. 
That's why they're so worried about the appearance of another Messiah. Perhaps he will lead them into conflict and into defeat. What about Jesus? Well, as he died on a cross, it must have looked like he was yet another failed Messiah. He didn't defeat the Romans, he died at their hands. And yet, and yet his death is a moment of victory, and he'll soon be proclaimed as the king of the world. Did Jesus restore the temple? He talked about the temple. He talked about the temple many times, often in the temple courts. He said this about the temple. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Paul the Apostle speaks of the new temple that Jesus created. What is a temple? It's the place where God's spirit dwells. It's the place where God can be found and encountered. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth that as Jesus has come into their lives, as the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in their hearts, they have become the temple of God. He says this to them. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And together, you are that temple. We meet this morning as the temple of God. We don't meet in the temple of God. We meet as the temple of God. Living stones being built up together into a holy temple. We meet as brothers and sisters in Christ, in whom God's Spirit dwells. He changes us and transforms us and makes us more into the likeness of Jesus, our Saviour. This building is precious, this building is important, but it's nowhere near as precious and as important as the the temple that sits here in these chairs. The home of God, the place where God's spirit dwells. Paul goes on to write, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? He is in you, the one whom you've received from God. You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore honour God with your bodies. The temple was destroyed and Jesus raised up a new temple, a living temple. A living people uh, devoted and dedicated to him in whom his spirit dwells. And Jesus won a decisive victory against the enemy. Uh, Colossians uh, 2 gives us the clearest statement of Jesus' victory upon the cross. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Verse 14. 
Paul draws together two important elements of the victory of the cross. First, he shows it's an act of God's gracious forgiveness. He compares it to the way that debts are cancelled. God has rescued us from our moral bankruptcy by paying our debts on the cross. Speaking uh, to somebody yesterday whose uh, business had uh, gone bankrupt uh, during lockdown. And they talked of the relief that they felt when finally all the accounts were settled and all the debts had been paid and they were able to move on uh, with their life. Jesus has rescued us from bankruptcy. Jesus has paid our debts in full. Not only that, but he's destroyed the records of our indebtedness. And not only is the cross a place of uh, the payment of debt, it's also a place of conquest. In the ancient world, when a victory was won, when two battles fought, uh, one would win, one would lose, and the losing general would be brought before the, the victorious army. He'd be paraded in front of them and then he would be stripped of his armour. He'd be stripped of his insignia. His weapons would be taken away. And the message was clear. This man has no power. This man has no authority. This man is no threat to you. You need fear him no longer. That's what happens upon the cross. When Jesus dies, death dies with him. When Jesus dies, the power of sin dies with him. When Jesus dies, the accusations of the enemy die with him too. He rises again to victory. A sign that the ransom has been paid, the debt has been lifted, the victory has been won. The enemy has surrendered unconditionally. We need not fear him any longer. Christ has triumphed over evil by repaying our debts, by delivering us from sin and from the power of sin, by defeating our accuser. When he died and rose again, the power of sin was broken and the power of the accuser who reminds us of our sin was broken with it. So what does this mean for us this morning? What does this mean for us as followers of this king? The king of kings and lord of lords. This king who gave his life as a ransom for his people. This king who died and rose again. Uh, Two things, I think, for us this morning. First is we need to keep him at the centre. His book, God's Big Picture, Vaughan Roberts, uh, talks about how the Bible fits together and he, he helps, tries to help us understand how to read the Bible and he uses uh, this illustration. He tells the story of two boys who are bored at one rainy summer's day and so they begin to do a jigsaw puzzle which kind of tells you how bored uh, they must be. Uh, they're making no progress until one of them uh, turns the lid over. And he sees the picture that they're trying to recreate. 
And it's the picture of a medieval uh, court scene. There's the king and there's the queen and there's the knights and the courtiers and everybody else uh, around. And one of the boys cries out, now I see it. The king is in the center. Once they recognize where the king goes, all the other pieces can fit together and the puzzle is easy to finish. Life can be a puzzle. Life can be hard to make sense of. Life can be hard uh, to see clearly. The answer is to put the king at the center. Put the king at the center, that's where he belongs, that's where he should go. And if you do that, the other pieces will fit into place. Keep the king at the center of your faith. Keep the king at the center of your church going. Keep the king at the center of your life. And secondly, offer him your service. Here's where we come back to Nehemiah, just to close off our sermon series in Nehemiah. We've read that the walls were rebuilt, the temple was refounded, the people of God gathered back together, safe and secure. And the story ends with them recommitting themselves to one another and to God's service. Uh, Nehemiah 10 verse 28 the rest of the people the priests the Levites the gatekeepers the musicians the temple servants and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of the Lord together with all their wives and their sons and their daughters everyone who was able to understand these bound themselves together and made an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses the servant of God They vowed to obey carefully all of his commands. And they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. Let's make that same commitment as followers of Christ. As we end one liturgical year and with Advent we start another liturgical year. Let's make a commitment to follow Christ. To stand with others who follow Christ, to keep him at the center and not to neglect the temple, which is the holy dwelling place of his spirit, the church of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, which he gave for us and for the world. Lord, we can scarcely conceive what it means that the king would give his life for his people, for the least of us. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep him at the center, to honor him with our lips and with our lives, to serve you in the world, in the workplace, in our families, and in our church. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. going to stand and continue in worship as we do so. We have a prayer ministry that's available this morning. If you'd like to pray with somebody, just head over to the side chapel there and somebody will pray for you. And um, really sense as I was sort of preparing for today that that sense of there are some people who um, 
are in places, difficult places, where they're expected to lay everything down for their boss or for their brand or for their company, and they're struggling with that as Christians. And if that is you, uh, particularly you this morning, uh, maybe get some prayer for that, uh, that situation. But let's all stand and sing together. We have an amazing hope. We have an amazing hope. I'm going to say something really quickly, Lee.